Let's open the Word of God to the book of Acts in our New Testaments called the Acts of the Apostles. For it is a history of the New Testament church and the ministry of those apostles after Jesus ascended up into heaven. Luke, the beloved physician, wrote the book of Acts and he wrote the gospel that bears his name. And the gospel covers 24 chapters leading up to the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And the book of Acts' 28 chapters cover the work of those apostles after he went up into heaven. This is inspired church history. Amen. And we have to finish this second chapter today. And I somewhat regret having to finish this chapter. I have enjoyed it very much. And I hope that you have as well. This is church history we can trust. This particular day that Acts chapter 2 occurred on was approximately June 1st of the year 30 A.D. Jesus had died 50 days earlier. That's why it's called Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And Jerusalem would be destroyed in 40 years after this day and time. The changes that occurred on this day with the immediate and later results are unprecedented Amen. and they're transcendent. It changed the world. 2.2 billion people call themselves Christians today out of 7.5 billion population on earth. And it started right here on this day of Pentecost with 120. And they look pretty pitiful. They were fearful. They were in an upper room hiding away from the Jews because of what had happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then God changed them and changed his church dramatically. Here is the formal birth of Christianity in some respects, an appointment and empowerment for kingdom explosion because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ swept the entire world. Amen. And we're thankful for that and we rejoice in it. 120. By noon, it had 3,120 members. And by evening, it had 5,000 more men added to it that are recorded in Acts chapter 3. So that we had a church now of in excess of 10, 15,000 if women and children are added in to those numbers. The kingdom of God appeared very weak, confused, fragile, uncertain and without much reason for any admiration on the morning of the day of Pentecost. But uh, by 9 o'clock, things were changing drastically. Right. Peter said it was the third hour of the day, meaning 9 a.m. in the morning. They were not drunk as they were accused, but they were speaking in foreign languages they had never learned. And so men born in those foreign languages were hearing the fluency of their Galilean fellow Jews, preaching the wonderful works of God. Right. And those 15 language groups are mentioned here. Jesus Christ was on his throne in heaven. He was no longer on earth. He humbled himself for 33 and a half years, and he will never humble himself again. Amen. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. The next time we see him, he will not look like he did when he was on earth. He'll look like he did in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 19 when John saw him glorified. Right. And he is a glorious king. And he was about 
to use his rule for the benefit of the church by pouring out the gift of the Holy Spirit on the church. And that church exploded into life. Now, very briefly, since this is my last time with you on this chapter, probably in my lifetime, so look at it. I know there are 47 verses, but I do not want it to overwhelm you at all. The first 21 verses, and I'm reviewing this with you, are the gift of the Holy Ghost that changed that church. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that the 120 were in a room. A sound of a rushing mighty wind filled that room. Little fires appeared on their heads, and they were full of the Holy Ghost in a way they'd never been filled with Him before. And they started preaching and teaching men, women, old, young, masters, servants, no class distinctions whatsoever, the wonderful works of God in many different languages they had never learned. A miracle indeed. And a miracle indeed that was proven by each hearer. Because each hearer raised in that tongue heard these Galileans that couldn't even speak Hebrew without an uneducated, unlearned, ignorant accent because they were backwoodsmen, fishermen from Nazareth, Capernaum, Galilee, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. As soon as they opened their mouths in their ordinary tongue, everyone knew they were unlearned and uneducated men because what came out was not polished or eloquent. But here they were preaching eloquently and fluently in other languages. And that takes place in verses 4 through 13, where it's described and the language groups are mentioned. Then verses 14 through 21 of this first section, Peter explains, we're not drunk. We know this is startling to you, but this is the fulfillment of a prophecy made by Joel in 700 B.C., This is a prophecy that's being fulfilled, and he explained how the prophecy was being fulfilled. That takes us through the 21st verse. Then Peter continues his sermon about the Lord Jesus Christ from verse 22 to verse 36. Verses 22 through 24 are a summary. Let me read it, because it's beautiful. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. This is a summary that Peter gave of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he would prove that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. Verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It is impossible for death to hold the Lord Jesus Christ, because Scripture said he would rise from the dead. And so Peter goes forward, but this little summary, verse 22, Jesus proved he was divine and on a divine mission by his miracles while he was with the Jews for three and a half years of his ministry from 30 years of age to 33 and a half. Verse 23 tells us that God's sovereign predestinating purpose included the Jews' wickedness in killing his son. Verse 24 tells us that God raised him up. He wasn't in the grave any longer. He's only there three days and three nights. 
He was raised and he had ascended into heaven. Now Peter's going to take up the Bible again and prove it. And that's what preaching is. Preaching is reading distinctly in the Bible and causing people to, and giving the sense of the words and causing people to understand the reading. That's what preaching is. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 tells us, so they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So here goes Peter. He has made a statement. Then he goes to Psalm 16, quotes four verses, which are verses 25 down through 28. Then he applies those verses. They're from Psalm 16, and he he uses inductive reasoning in verses 29 through 31. He pulls this fact about David, this fact about David, the fact that David's sepulcher is right down the street. So if David wrote in Psalm 16 about his body not being corrupted in the grave, then he must have been talking about someone else. And since David was a prophet, and since God had promised to David that of his descendants he would raise up a Messiah, the Messiah, Peter goes through this inductive reasoning and comes to a conclusion. Verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, Jesus is indeed risen from the dead by Psalm 16 and inductive reasoning. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand, was given the Holy Spirit as a gift and the spoils of victory for what he accomplished on the cross. He then, in turn, gave that to his church. We've been over all that before. Because Psalm 68 says he received it, Ephesians chapter 4, quoting Psalm 68, says he gave it. Well, which is true? Yes, both are true. He received it from God and he gave it to the church. Notice in verse 32 that Peter stated, This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. That's part of the inductive reasoning, or even in addition to it, we are eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the fundamental message of the gospel Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. The founder of our religion rose from the dead. That gives us incredible hope because he's the first fruits of them that sleep, meaning bodies sleeping in the ground. He's the first fruits. And so that gets us to through verse 33, but we're still in section two of the chapter. David prophesied of it in Psalm 16, but Jesus is king. Because now Peter picks up another passage of scripture from Psalm 110. Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens. But he saith himself, the Lord, that's God Jehovah, that's why the capital letters, said unto my Lord, that's Jesus Christ, the ruler of the universe, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. That's David in another psalm, Psalm 110. David isn't up there. David's body's over here in the cemetery. Jesus is up there. Because David wrote, The Lord said unto my Lord, those are two parties outside of David. God Jehovah with his son Jesus Christ, who was also David's son by the flesh. Verse 36 is my favorite verse of the chapter. Therefore, I love therefores in logical rhetoric, 
bringing a conclusion from some points that have been made. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, that second Lord's the ruler of the universe. God has made Jesus that you crucified, the Lord of the universe, and he is the Christ. He is the Messiah Israel has known about in its prophecies for 4,000 years. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know this assuredly. Now, this is a big difference for this fisherman. Peter, 50 days earlier, had denied Jesus because a little maid had confronted him at a fire outside the priest's judgment hall. And we read about that in all four Gospels. But here, Peter is unafraid, and he preaches that Gospel. And then we have the glorious response, verses 37 to 40. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And that's how we want to receive the gospel. We want to be pricked. Lord, have mercy upon us. Because if you do not prepare our hearts and prick us and open our hearts, we will not be pricked. We'll be cut. We'll be bored. We'll be angered. We'll be frustrated. We'll be empty. We'll just discard it as something foolish. They were pricked. These were people that earlier had directly or indirectly crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they're responding very differently. And it's to a fisherman. An uneducated fisherman. A backwoods redneck fisherman. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What should we do now that we've crucified Jesus of Nazareth and he's at God's right hand and God has made him Lord? What do we do? He's going to come and destroy us. Because notice verse 35, Peter quoted from Psalm 110, that God was going to make Jesus Christ's enemies his footstool. That means you put your feet on them and grind them to powder. Jesus had said that he would do that to his enemies in Matthew chapter 21. So they're afraid, and justly so. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. He didn't mention Moses. He didn't mention temple worship. He didn't mention the law of Moses. He said, repent from crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ and rejecting him and be baptized in his name for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What you see happening to us can happen to you. You can get this same blessing from Christ by repenting and being baptized. For the promise in verse 39 is unto you and to your children. That means it's a perpetual gift that now exists in the earth for the last 2,000 years since this day, and to all that are far off, that's us Gentiles that have no claim to be part of the commonwealth of Israel or the Jews that God had dealt with exclusively for 1,500 years from Moses to Christ. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. God's called men out of this world to be his children. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. That generation of Jews, that generation of Jews that had killed the Lord Jesus Christ was soon to be destroyed with the worst tribulation the world has ever seen. And that was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, 40 years after this. John the Baptist had foretold it. Jesus had foretold it. Paul wrote about it. 
Peter here is reminding them about it. And in fact, he took many words to remind them of this important event that was coming, that that generation that crucified the Son of God, that cruelly accused him of crimes he was not guilty of, and forced the Roman governor out of fear for his political position to crucify Jesus Christ, that generation was going to be destroyed. It was an untoward generation, a devil-possessed generation, a rebellious generation. Now listen, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that God had dealt with his people severely before. He had dealt with them severely in Egypt. He had dealt with the ten tribes severely by the Assyrians. He had dealt with the two tribes severely by the Babylonians. But what had those generations done? Nothing in comparison to this generation that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were going to be destroyed. And so Peter exhorted these men to repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, and save yourselves from this untoward generation. Jesus had taught in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, Luke 21, that the Jews that heard him and would receive his teaching, when they saw the armies encompassing Jerusalem, they would get out, flee across the Jordan River to the mountains on the other side in Perea and Pella and Decapolis and be saved from the Roman armies. And they did. All that was foretold. And so here was deliverance from a judgment that was coming on those that had crucified Jesus. And that brings us to verse 41. That's a long review, but I want you to love the chapter and see its parts coming together to get us to verse 41. They have asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter has said, repent and be baptized and save yourselves from this wicked generation that's about to be destroyed. Well, what did they do? And so that brings us to the last seven verses of this chapter, and it's the character of the Jerusalem church in these last seven verses. This ought to be the mandate for New Testament churches. When I go online and look at the different websites of churches and look for their church mission statement or their church mandate, this ought to be the mandate. Because this is what a church full of the Holy Ghost does. That's right. They have stolen something, in most cases, from the apostles and applied it to themselves, and they think that their mission statement is the Great Commission. But you can read all the epistles of the New Testament where the apostles wrote churches, and that is never mentioned, right. nor implied, nor referenced, nor even indirectly right. implicated, indicated in what they wrote. But this is what all the epistles tell church members to be doing with each other and to be doing together toward the Lord. Let me read it to you, these seven verses. This is the character of a spirit-filled church. It it had 120 members at 6 a.m. that morning. By noon, it had 3,120 members. And here's how they behaved. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common, 
and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Amen. amen and amen. Let's look at these verses and see if we can learn something. I'm going to have a few questions for you at the end, because when you hear these verses briefly explained, and it will be brief, you need to ask yourself, am I a church member like that? If I am not, is it because I'm not really one of God's children, I'm not really saved, or I've just been lazy and selfish? Because there isn't a good answer. If you say, no, I'm not really like that. We want to be like that. You need to be like that. If you're not like this, who says that you're even a Christian? Who says you're even saved? This is what saved people do. Then we've got to ask, is this what our church is like? And if we have to say, no, our church isn't really like this. Then what are you going to do to make it like this? Is what we've got to come away from these verses with. What are we going to do together to make our church like this? Let's go. Let's look at these words. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. What a change. They received his word gladly. They were just told, I don't care about Moses because nothing was mentioned about Moses. Repent. Do you know what repent means? What you are doing is wrong. What you are doing is sinful. Repent. Be baptized. I want you to be a fool for Jesus' sake. I want to take you down into some water, you adult hearers of me, in your clothes, and I'm going to stuff you down underwater and raise you up again. Repent. You're wrong. Become a fool for Jesus' sake and get the Holy Ghost, which your priests don't have, and join with us, backwoods redneck fishermen from Galilee. Now that's rough. But how did they receive that kind of a message? They gladly received it. Lord, help us. What a change. These people, directly or indirectly, had hated Jesus and betrayed him to crucifixion. Peter had not preached a prosperity gospel for self-fulfillment like Joel Osteen is preaching today. That's all Joel Osteen knows how to preach. It's the same thing every single Sunday. A message of self-fulfillment, self-love, self-esteem, and the prosperity gospel. Peter hadn't mentioned anything about it. Did Peter mention going to heaven? No. No. That's really quite irrelevant. What did Peter mention? Jesus is David's Lord, and Jesus is God's Son, and you crucified him according to the determinate counsel and plan of God, and you need to repent. He is Lord and Christ. You need to repent of your sins and be baptized in his name, identifying yourself with him by being buried and raised again from a watery grave to show your identification with his burial and resurrection from an earthly grave. And they gladly received it. Peter had said that the Galileans had fulfilled Joel. That's a pretty big boast. That's what Peter had said. He had said the Jews were wicked murderers. 
He had said that Jesus had risen to be king in heaven. They gladly received it. God's true children gladly receive instruction and correction, no matter how condemning or how new the information is. If it's from God's word, they gladly receive it. When we look in the book of Proverbs, and of course, over the last 15 years, we have looked in the book of Proverbs verse by verse. The number one mark or trait of wisdom is the ability to receive correction, reproof, and instruction. A wise man recognizes he doesn't know everything. A wise man realizes I need someone else to tell me what I don't know. Wisdom is getting to the place where you know what you don't know. Foolishness is thinking you know everything. Wisdom is knowing what you don't know so that you know you need to be taught by someone else. And these men were wise that way. The Old Testament church, when they heard the preaching of Nehemiah and Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8, they rejoiced. They, they celebrated that day. Though, they also wept because they knew they were guilty. Right. But they were instructed by their leaders, don't weep today. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Right. Duty, duty is not a powerful motivator. Show me a person in love, and I'll show you a person that's going to do a whole lot more than someone out of duty. Right. Joy is a motivator. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Yes. And so the result in Nehemiah chapter 8 was joy. And here it's joy, because they gladly received his word. That was fantastic news they had just heard. Jesus was on his throne, the Messiah had come, and they had an opportunity to repent and be part of his kingdom. God's elect love preaching, unlike reprobates or belly worshipers. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ is preached, and I don't mean any entertaining anecdotal stories, jokes, and illustrations. I mean Jesus Christ is preached. The Bible tells us it does two things. There's two responses. There's those that gladly receive it and obey it, and it is the evidence of life unto life. They are born-again children of God, showing the life that is in them by God's regenerating work, and they move toward eternal life. Life unto life. Then there are those that just sleep, are bored, read a hymnal, read a Bible. They don't listen. They're bored because it is an evidence of death unto death in them. They're not born again. Their souls are dead, and so the gospel doesn't mean anything to them. Right. It's death unto death. And so when we preach the gospel, we always triumph. That's right. Because there are some that are born again and they respond because they have life. And there are those that aren't born again and they respond as well with boredom and foolishness and don't come back and don't change their lives. But those that change their lives are God's true children. God's elect, whether they're male or female, love hard preaching. They want it bold, dogmatic, plain, and specific just like John, Jesus, and the apostles preached it. How a person responds to preaching is a foolproof measure of their salvation or their carnality. Lord, help us. Some sleep, some daydream, some read the Bible during service, some read a hymnal. They talk of earthly things afterwards. They miss every service they can without being excluded. They never do anything to serve the church. They complain about this. They complain about that. Those people are not saved. 
most likely not saved. If saved, and there's no reason to think that they are, if saved, they're carnal Christians. But if they're carnal Christians, they're going to be chastened and chastened severely for not enthusiastically and gladly receiving the gospel. The gospel is hid to the vast majority, even those creeping into churches. The Bible tells us many are called, but few are chosen. And so because of that, many are called to the gospel. They come in, they sit, they warm a pew. But because they're not chosen by God, they're not part of his elect family, the gospel doesn't mean anything to them. And that's Matthew 22, the first 14 verses describe that. When God comes in and measures a congregation, and he comes up to a man and he says, Where is your wedding garment? And the man is speechless. And the Lord says, throw him out of here. Because he's not clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul went and visited a place called Berea. And Luke wrote, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word with all readiness of mind. That is how preaching should be received. I am ready, preacher. Lay the word of God on me. Show me something from the Bible. Show me something about Jesus Christ. Show me God's will for my life. They receive the word with all readiness of mind, and they search the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. They did not search the scriptures daily to find fault with the pastor. They searched the scriptures daily to see that those things were so. Because they didn't have Bibles in everybody's hand like you do. They didn't have Bibles on their phones yet. They had the phones, of course, because everybody's always had a phone. (laughs) But they didn't have a Bible app on their phone. And so they went and searched the scriptures. I heard Paul use this passage from Isaiah and this passage from Psalms. Is it really there? It really is. That's what the Bereans did. What does the Holy Spirit say about the Bereans? They were noble. Noble men receive the word with a ready mind. They want to be taught. They want to learn. And so these here, they believed the preaching and they obeyed it without ignorant arguing and skeptical unbelief. Like the ones at John the Baptist. Remember a few weeks ago, John the Baptist, the men came to him and said, what should we do? The soldiers asked, the publicans asked, the people asked. And he had a response for each of them, something they should do to please God. If you need to think about being baptized, you have not fully believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'd like you for you to tell me why you don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. On what grounds can you prove that the gospel of Jesus Christ is wrong and doesn't deserve your obedience? Because these men didn't take long. They were ready. Then they that gladly received his word. And it turned their worlds upside down. Their religious worlds were turned on their head by what Peter had presented. But they were baptized. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. You know, we're Baptists. That means that just by being a Baptist, we're in 5% of the world's Christians. On the point of baptism, we're Baptists because we baptize by immersion. Lowering a person underwater in a picture of death and burial and raising them back up in a picture of resurrection. The other 95% of those that call themselves Christians can't even figure out baptism from the Bible. 
And so they sprinkle or rub with a thumb a little bit of holy chrism or special water of the Catholic Church in the form of a cross on their forehead or Presbyterians. I mean, you could use a squirt gun. You could accomplish it in any kind of a way because there's not a single verse in the Bible about it whatsoever. It's all man-made, made-up hallucination about how to baptize. And there's a reason for it. And I wrote it to you this week, and I never want you to forget, once you make the error that baptism saves a soul from hell, you will then invent all other kinds of errors to keep people from going to hell. That's where infant baptism came from. If baptism saves, and I'm afraid of my baby dying, then you baptize your baby. Since there isn't enough water around for me to dip, then we're just going to sprinkle. And since I might have a miscarriage, the Roman Catholic Church invented intrauterine devices to baptize babies in the womb. And since Joseph Smith of the Mormons has his own Mormon baptism, you've got to be baptized for your dead relatives that never had a chance to meet Joe. Honestly, it all comes from one false assumption that baptism saves. And so baby-sprinkling heretics like to look at a passage like this and say, it's, there's proof that they couldn't have been immersed. How in the world could they immerse 3,000 in one day? Listen, I could do it myself. But they had 12 at least. Right. And if there's 12, that's only taking 250. How long would it take to, to baptize 250? If you took a minute per person, why would you need to take a minute? But let's go ahead and give them a minute. If you had to baptize 250 and take a minute apiece, is that only going to take four hours? Is my math still decent? Now, what if you only took 30 seconds? Why couldn't I do it in 15? Then it's only one hour. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff. See, once you go down a, tr a path of error, you'll just make up any excuse you can. And so they look at this and say, 3,000, it's impossible to get them all immersed in a day. They had them all immersed before noon. Easily. Easily, if only 12 were baptizing. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Amen. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That church grew from 120 to 3,120 immediately. That day by noon, they had joined, as do all church members anywhere, by the mutual assent and desire of all the parties involved. Saul of Tarsus was at first. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus was converted. He went into Damascus, and he stayed there for a while and preached in the synagogue. About three years. Then he made a trip to Jerusalem and essayed to join the disciples there in verse 26 of Acts chapter 9, but they wouldn't let him. And that's how it works. You try to join a church because you hear the gospel preached by them. God has arranged in his providence for you to connect with a church, hear the gospel, get baptized, meet the qualifications. You believe the doctrine preached by that church. The church is ready to receive you, and you want to join them. And so it happens. There's a compact made and a commitment made to each other that we're going to keep the rules of the New Testament toward each other, and that's how a church member is formed. Saul of Tarsus got to Jerusalem and wanted to do that, and they wouldn't let him because, listen, they said among themselves, this man killed my relatives in the past. How in the world? We can't let him be a member of this church. And so Barnabas had to come down and explain that Paul had truly been converted. Then the church received him, and he was with them, coming in and going out in Jerusalem. That's in Acts 9. 
The Roman Catholic Church spawned the baptismal membership heresy. Because when you baptize that little baby, and it's not a baptism, sprinkling and rubbing a little water on a forehead is not a burial. It's not a resurrection. It's nothing. You've never been to a cemetery or never been to a funeral and seen them just rub a little dirt on someone's forehead. It doesn't get the job done. But when they sprinkle that little baby, that little baby becomes a member of the church. That's where it comes from. And there are some Baptists that have been in her brothel for that particular point and believe the same thing. That baptism is the door to the church. No, baptism isn't the door to a church. A church doesn't have anything to do with baptism except to require it as a condition for membership. Baptism is an individual ordinance and it is a ministerial ordinance. When Philip and the eunuch were out in the middle of the desert, they did not need a church for any purpose whatsoever. They didn't need witnesses at all. They had an administrator that was qualified by God because he was an evangelist. His name was Philip. And they had a eunuch that believed with all his heart. And Philip baptized the eunuch, and that's all they needed. There was no church around. No church received the eunuch as a member. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing. It may have been six months. It may have been six years. It may have been 16 years when an apostle visited Ethiopia and formed a church there that he could be part of. He didn't become a part of our church. Any more than you being baptized, you become a part of the Jerusalem church. There is application made to a church. And that church receives, and that's what we're going to be doing today. Receiving or excluding members is by formal congregation action. What puts a person in a church and what puts a person outside of the church from the practical and I do not like to use the next word I'm going to use, organizational standpoint. The church. How did the incestuous fornicator in 1 Corinthians 5 get outside the church where God could judge him? The church put him out. Paul told the church, you put him out. You took him in. Now put him out. Because once you put him out, then God can judge him. What do we have to do to judge them that are without? We judge those that are within, and God takes care of them when we put them out. And then you have verses like this that come into play. Whatsoever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that is in regard to a man that would not receive the judgment of the church regarding some small incidental event between him and other members in Matthew 18. In our church, you have always heard that being a destroyed jigsaw that was borrowed from a brother. If, the, if that brother will not hear the church tell him that he needs to replace that jigsaw, he is to be treated like a heathen man and a publican. Who makes that choice? The church does. What happens when the church does that? God responds in heaven by removing them from the spiritual unity and organism of the church. Because whatsoever we bind on earth as a church is bound in heaven. God goes by the judgment of the church in these matters between two brothers. I am not talking about matters between a church member and God. That is entirely a different class of sins. Right. 
Matthew 18, 15 through 18 is dealing, if thy brother trespass against thee, not trespass against heaven, but trespass against thee. And so, verse 41, without going further, and you know there are links that you can go to and read all you want about this particular point. How does the Lord add to his churches? It's so simple. He first providentially connects his people to a ministerial or church work. He has dots. We're going to hear about them in the second service today of how people became aware of and acquainted with and then were attending this church. He first providentially connects people. He then opens their hearts and grants them repentance to be converted to the truth. He then convinces the receiving church with sufficient evidence to receive them. He then, after they receive them as members and there's a mutual compact made together that we're going to follow the rules of the New Testament toward each other, he then adds them to the spiritual unity of that church by baptizing them himself that doesn't involve any water by his spirit into the organism and grafting them in to the body of Jesus Christ. You know, when it says here, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. There's an error by some. And that is that they are self-sufficient and they don't need a church. These spirit-filled believers were not content with their new knowledge or any distant ministry. They didn't want a cassette tape ministry. They didn't want an internet ministry. They wanted to be part of those apostles and the other believers there in Jerusalem. They loved the other believers and they wanted fellowship with them, just like we should. The multiplication of communication media has created heretical isolationism and independence, but not to a spirit-led believer. They want to be part of other believers. God's order by apostolic tradition is for saints to assemble together and to promote their local body. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly. Real Christians continue. Remember, we've been studying John, and in John chapter 8, Jesus said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. If ye continue in my word. So many profess Christ and then leave Christ. Profess Christ and run back to the world. But look at these. And they continued steadfastly. We can't change. We can't be variable. You know, some of you need to rule your spirits better because you don't match up with verse 42. They continued steadfastly. That doesn't just mean attending because attending is not mentioned next. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. We can't wax and wane if we're going to be Christians that line up with this. Of course, David and others sometimes wax and wane. Paul himself said, cast down but not destroyed. But we should fight against that. That is not the characteristic of spirit-led Christians. Spirit-led Christians continue steadfastly. That means they don't move. They're immovable, unchangeable. God doesn't change. The Bible doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. Why do you change? Because your hot water heater went out? Why do you change? Because you had the flu? Little tiny, God doesn't change, Jesus doesn't change, the Bible doesn't change, truth doesn't change, they didn't change. They continued in the apostles' doctrine, true conversion lasts. Lord, help us to do that. 
it wasn't just weekly or mere attendance, but it was steadfastness in the apostolic faith. They continued in the doctrine. True churches of Jesus Christ are doctrinal churches. So we want to have a doctrinal church. Paul warned, and we're living in the fulfillment of this prophecy. The most important prophecy for our generation is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 4. It's 21 verses that warn about the perilous times of the last days. And it says of those days, the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. The word doctrine simply means teaching a body of truth. They will no longer endure sound doctrine. I know as well as you know that it takes endurance to listen to me. I am the definition, the other definition of the word drone. Okay? There's a drone that is like a pilotless plane. And you know about those, right? right. They're going to be delivering your pizza in the next 24 months. <laughs> They'll drop it in the front yard in a cushioned box. But I'm the other drone because you got to endure me. I'm sorry. I wish I was entertaining. But I don't really care. I'm just going to preach God's word to you. Amen. But I want you to notice we better be a doctrinal church because they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It doesn't say the apostles' programs, the apostles' recreation, the apostles' clubs, the apostles' doctrine, and the apostles' fellowship. It was, it was apostolic fellowship. Apostolic fellowship would have been the highest level of spiritually filled, holy fellowship possible with other men. 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses describe it, where John said, we want your fellowship to be with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the kind of fellowship. It's not going bowling together. It's not going shooting together. It's apostolic fellowship. The apostles did not have time for such things. They wanted to be with the Word of God in prayer, seeking Christ and evangelizing. And so it's apostolic fellowship. And then in breaking of bread, that's apostolic breaking of bread. That's the Lord's Supper. Then apostolic in prayers. That's not praying. It's being in prayer meeting with the apostles. This is what these early church members did. And it's limited by the word apostles. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The church ordinances and the church practices led by the apostles, these people continued in them. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Every single day led this church to fear God in a greater way. You had presented to you today Psalm 130 about the fear of God, and this church grew in the fear of God, partly by the miracles being done by the apostles and the Holy Spirit working among them for their fear. And fear in the Bible, when it's used relative to the fear of God, is not a slavish paranoia that God's going to crush you. It's the desire of love and respect to Him and reverence for Him that you do not want to disappoint Him. That's the fear of God. The fear of God in the Bible is the first step of wisdom. The fear of God in the Bible is doing what God wants you to do because you don't want to displease Him. You want to honor and love Him. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, feared God, but not in the way that I'm referring to. 
Adam feared God because he went and hid in the trees of the garden. He should have come out and repented. Because you heard from Psalm 130, because there's forgiveness with God, therefore we fear Him. Adam should have run out and repented, but he didn't. And so that's a slavish, ridiculous fear of God that doesn't leave, lead one to repentance. But fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. We want our church to grow in the fear of the Lord. Then it comes to the character of the people that make up the church. Verse 44, let me read the next three and a half verses. Because the first half of verse 47 goes with these three. Verse 44, And all the believed were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. They were together. They did not live their own little selfish lives merely catching up on Sundays. The Roman church has no fellowship for the most part unless you play bingo. The the Roman church, you just go in for that one hour mass. Nobody will say anything to you. You can go in take mass, go home, and live your own little selfish life. That is not a church of the New Testament. The church of the New Testament has a body life, has a church life that pervades your whole life. It involves you. These people were involved on a daily basis. These people were involved in hospitality in their homes because it says eating their meat from house to house with single hearts. So they were together. And much could be said about this, but I don't want to belabor the point. They were together. They didn't live their own little selfish lives. They were not in one place all the time. The word together doesn't mean that here because 20,000 to 50,000 people after a week couldn't be in the temple all at one time stuffed into one corner of that place. It wasn't quite that big. The error of forsaking assemblies had not yet occurred in this season of the Spirit. Forsaking the assembling of the brothers? Why would you ever want to be gone? Right. Why? Unless you absolutely can't be there. They had all things common. No man considered anything his own. They were ready to share their assets. This did not mean that they became communists or socialists denying personal assets. Because, and I'll prove it to you. Some people have gone to this passage and taught that Jesus and his apostles taught communism and socialism. Look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 4 where we have Ananias and Sapphira had sold a piece of property and brought part of the proceeds to give to the apostles. Peter explains that they had the liberty to do whatever they wanted to with that asset. Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? Notice, they had all things common. No, I'm going to show you what that that means. Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Didn't you have the authority to do what you wanted to with the proceeds of that sale? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Okay, back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 45. These two verses together, they had all things common and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men. And here is the qualifying descriptor. As every man had need. When there was a need, things were sold to take care of the need. 
when there was a need, money was given or things were given to take care of that need as there was a need. And the Bible is very careful and very specific about describing needs. It is food, clothing, shelter, and emergency medical treatment, and there isn't anything else. And we've taught that before, and it's throughout the pages of Scripture. When the Good Samaritan found the wounded Jew in the ditch, he poured oil and wine into his wounds, he bound the wounds up, he put him on his beast of burden and took him to an inn and committed him there and said, take care of this man until he's better. And if you run up any more expenses, I'll come and take care of it. There's, see, he didn't get him a, a big screen TV. He didn't give him toys for tots. Food, clothing, shelter, emergency medical treatment, as a man has need. As we progress through the New Testament, we find Paul in 1 Timothy 6, telling Timothy to preach to the rich. Tell the rich, don't trust in your riches, but trust in the living God that giveth us richly all things to enjoy, and be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Teach them to have an eagerness and a readiness and a willingness to cough up some of their assets, to sell some of their properties when there's a need. It doesn't say sell all they have and put it in a common pool. It says just be ready and willing. It's 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, and that is what is meant right here if you get to the end of the sentence where you have, as every man had need. It wasn't to share and make everyone on the same plane economically. But where there was a need, food, clothing, shelter, and emergency medical treatment, it was to be taken care of, and it was taken care of with such an eager spirit that they had all things common. They, nothing mattered to them. My brother is not going to suffer in this church. He's not going to be short those things. Now we've learned, and we've studied at other times, if a man hasn't saved... If a man doesn't work hard, he doesn't get charity. Because if a man doesn't work, neither should he. So even food, the first thing on the list, is denied if a man doesn't work hard enough to provide for himself. And all that's been taught before, but sometimes people run into these verses and think that Christianity is communistic, and it is not. Throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture, there are rich men and there are poor men. The churches have rich men and the churches have poor men. And they're to get along well, and the rich men are to take care of the poor men if there is a need. And they, verse 46, continuing daily with one accord. They were so excited about the religion of Jesus Christ that they participated in it with others daily. With one accord. They had one mind. There was no schism. There was no division. There was no strife. There weren't quarrels. They got along with each other because they were a spirit-filled church of one accord. And that is what we want. They continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, showing hospitality with each other in their houses, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Notice the joy they had. They continued daily in this activity with one accord. They ate in Christian fellowship one with another. Who do you want to eat with? Your unbelieving family? Or the people of God? Who is it exciting and comforting to eat with? The context of these verses is unity and love and fellowship of these saints. 
Bread was a basic food staple of the times. Breaking of bread can be common eating and not the communion. We see the communion over there in verse 42. And here we see from house to house, breaking bread and eating their meat with singleness of heart. Notice it says singleness of heart in the last part of the verse. In the first part of the verse, it says one accord. A church of all things has to be at peace with each other. There can't be divisions among us. We need to love each other. How can you get along with another sinner? Other sinners in the church are going to offend you. The pastor is going to offend you. Forgive me, and I'll forgive you. Forgive me again, and I'll forgive you again. Forgive me a third time, and I'll forgive you a third time. How far should we go with that forgiveness? Seventy times seven is what Jesus told Peter. When Peter wanted a limit of seven, Jesus said 70 times seven is closer to the real number. Because look at this. A spirit-filled church is unified. Are there any parts of my body in disunity right now? They all work together. My fingers, my toes, my feet, my spleen, my heart, my mind, my eyelids, because I can blink them. You know, all these parts are working because there's one spirit. The Bible compares the physical body to a church and uses it as a powerful metaphor that a church with all of its individual parts, its individual joints, like my individual joints and parts, works together because there's one spirit in me. It's the spirit of Jonathan Crosby in this body of flesh and clay, and it's the spirit of the living God in our church. And it's our job to use that spirit because we can quench that spirit as well. That's why we we are to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's an endeavor for us to maintain it. It's work to maintain it. But there's one Spirit inside us that helps us because the fruit of the Spirit is love. So do you love me? I love you. Joy. Are you happy? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. I'm happy. I couldn't wait to get here today. Peace, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, long-suffering, mercy, and all the other ones that we find in other places. That's what a church ought to have. Look at this description of them. They continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Wow! They had one heart. Love of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of each other. Single hearts. Praising God. We want a church that praises God. That's why this pulpit is always open. For you to get up in our second service and praise God for any goodness in your life, for anything you found in the Word of God, praising God and having favor with all the people. When our ways please the Lord, He makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. And the general population of Jerusalem liked the Jerusalem church. Now the religious leaders are going to stir them up against these people. But they like them because if you are walking in the Spirit, you grow in favor with God and men. Praising God and having favor with all the people. This is a church mission statement. This is a church mandate. This is what we want. We want to gladly receive preaching. We want to gladly be baptized. We want to join together. We want to continue steadfastly. I'm in verse 42. In doctrine, in fellowship, in the Lord's Supper, in prayers, prayer meetings, 
and fear. We want to grow in the fear of God. We want to consider our things to be communal in the sense that we will share our assets to help any brother in a time of need, as verse 45 ends. And we want to continue daily thinking, praying, fellowshipping when we can with our brethren. Having fellowship, the Bible says, be given, be given to hospitality. That's not once in a quarter doing it. It's to be given to it. You're vulnerable, susceptible, and addicted to showing hospitality. And to do it without grudging, 1 Peter 4, 9. Peter, the man leading this church, wrote it later in 1 Peter 4, 9. Lord, help us to have that kind of a church. That's the church life that takes place outside of these walls. And doing it with gladness and singleness of heart. This little description starts with gladness, ends with gladness, and single heart and one accord. We have one purpose, one goal, one thought, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the furtherance of his gospel, the love of the brethren, to help them grow in love and good works. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Thank you, Lord, for adding those that you choose to your church. You need to ask yourself, do I have the joy, the zeal, the steadfastness, and the brotherly love as these men? If not, you need to change. Is our church this way? If not, let's make it this way. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.